Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schiphol. And that's Steve Jones. And today on the program, we have a, uh, a really fun conversation. And I'm going to give you background into uh, who I spoke with and how it came about. And, uh, and it's, you know, I'm really kind of impressed and surprised that it did, uh, it did happen, to be honest. But it's a, a band called Last in Line. Um, that's uh, comprised of uh, classic rock musicians who you know who have been around for you know a long time and have very tenured careers and uh, and so I got to uh, speak with uh, Vinnie Pice who uh, I'll, I'll give you background into him uh, in a little bit uh, but we had, a, we had a fun conversation and great yeah awesome yeah. good 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 five goods was it epic long. It was about a half an hour. It was solid. Oh, that's that's a good time. That's a, that's a right. That's cushion. that's just that's just the amount of time that you need to get really into the you know meaningful stuff. Yeah, we we hit we hit a lot of material. So we'll talk about that uh, soon in just a, a little bit. But before we do, Jens, how can people get a hold of us? Well, there are several different ways that people can get a hold of us here at Concert Pipeline. Social media. This is the place to go to. Uh, Got to hit a couple different spots. Facebook. Check us out at Concert Pipeline Pod. Great job. <laughs> I was like, okay, I got to add something after I say Concert Pipeline, right? It's only oh, about yeah, your 110th pod. time doing this. So. <laughs> I know. You'd think I'd have it memorized by now. Yeah. Um, but that's not all. YouTube. Instagram. You can reach us at Concert Pipeline. Yep. And of course, Twitter. Yes. Our handle is, you guessed it, Concert Pipeline. You got it. Okay. Every now and then we do the whole live thing. Periscope? Yes. Thank you. Periscope. <laughs> You're on top of the social media thing. It's going to take like the whole podcast for you to get through it. I know. Okay. Yeah. Give me another five minutes and I'll wrap it up. Um, I haven't done that very often, but. It'll Every now and then we can end. Yes. We can try. We can try. Yes. Uh, so great job there, Jens. Thank you. I, I, I didn't rehearse, but it, it, it sounded pretty good, right? It sounded flawless, actually. Fantastic. Yes. yes. Uh, so we're running toward the end of January, which means the end of duck hunting season. And one might say good riddance. Uh, <laughs> 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 one might say good riddance. One might say... The season's not over yet. Let me clock as many hours as I can before the opportunity is gone, right? Yeah. So have you packed up your bags? Are you saying, okay, you know, that's it for this season or what? No, I have two more hunts. I'm not quitting until it's over. It has been an absolutely rough season beginning to end and if you want to hear all about it go listen to any episode of concert pipeline <laughs> since the beginning of duck season you hear all about right. my challenges in my first season of, of duck hunting uh, uh, and you guys will be able to listen to some pretty awesome stuff that involves crazy weather and not hitting ducks and other things yes and at some point maybe i'll go back and listen to some of the old episodes so i can actually kind of chronicle because i started out like at the beginning of the season having a uh you know a hunting journal 
I've since let it go quite empty because I just don't want to deal with the, you know, disappointment and kind of channel through that method. I've channeled more through the pod than I have. I haven't written anything in the journal. So the journal, uh, the pod is kind of your journal now. You've, you've, just, you've just transferred the medium. It has been. And, and so there's a piece of me that like, okay, I should go back and, and listen to all of the opportunities and all of the challenges and failures that I've had this, this season in my first season. There are no failures. There are only areas of opportunity. Thank you for that. Uh, um, and I mean, I, you know, before we get into the story of the most recent hunts, um, which of which there were two this past weekend, um, like I've, I've made a, a good number of mistakes this season, but I've never made the same one twice. So I do learn. It just takes a mistake to learn through from, you know, uh, and, and sometimes at the expense of a hunt. Which, Understood. Which we'll get into. So, Well, that's that's a great thing to know. I mean, that's got to give you confidence, right? For next season that, you know, I'm running low on mis- possible mistakes that I can make. Right. You're, you're eliminating the opportunity of more mistakes to make because eventually that you're going to run out. And I will just, it'll be pure perfection. It'll be point. pure perfection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Limit every hunt, I'm sure. Huh? <laughs> or maybe you'll forget, you know, that you already did those mistakes, no, and then you'll no, think no, you're no, doing no, them no, again not, for the first we're time. We're not talking about that. <laughs> so at no. some point, you have to get back to your journal, your paper journal, mm-hmm. and and either start writing stuff down or realizing that the blank pages are symbolic for like nothing happened this season. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of both. I do need to write stuff down, and they are symbolic for not a lot happening. I mean, I've hit. <laughs> Three to four ducks I, mm. all in this, this season, and I've been out on probably at least 20 hunts. You know? Right, um, right. I mean, I've gone out a lot. And you have gone out a lot, but in all fairness to you, there have been many occasions where they're just, the ducks are just not there. Right? There have been. There have been. So it's a combination of multiple factors. Yes, I am a very unseasoned hunter um, with, you know, my, with my first season. And one of those to which you're describing is, you know, I'm going to, you know, talk about today um, in terms of a challenge with, you know, um, with my hunts. But um, actually, I'll talk. So I'll talk about both hunts. Right. So I went out this past Saturday and Sunday. Let's start with Saturday since that came first. Right. And I went out solo to uh, Grizzly Island, um, which is in the Sassoon area, uh, National Wildlife uh, Refuge. And uh, it's a public hunting spot. I w- um, and I had intel on a spot that shot pretty well uh, from a couple of friends. Um, and so I got, you know, I got in about 6 a.m. I mean, I was in line at 4 or so, 4 a.m. And, um, and, you know, and got in and went to the spot. There was someone in the exact spot where... Um, where I had been intending to go. So I moved over to, you know, a slight, uh, you know, about a hundred yards away to a, a different pond and, uh, and found a great spot. Right. You know, I found a really, really good spot. I set out my decoys. Mm-hmm. I set up a jerk cord, which is a, you know, when there's no wind, uh, the water's not moving. So you want your ducks to have some movement, make it look realistic. Right. You have the ducks uh you know like four of the ducks attached to this jerk cord which you can pull on and it'll make the ducks move a little bit make it look more realistic you know why is it called a jerk because you jerk on it you're pulling the cord it's not because you are a jerk it's because you're jerking 
Don't think so. It's like so. every time you jerk, you have to have this cord. It's like a jerk cord. That's it. We're going to move forward, and I'll let you sit on that one. All so. right, all right, all right. <laughs> I'm not going to expand on the other possibilities of what you could use a jerk off cord for. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a jerk off cord. I did not use a jerk off cord. Uh, <laughs> Moving on. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so, you know, I was all set up. It was. It was really great, and I, I was seemingly the only person on this pond right there. I didn't see any other decoys or anything. You know, there were people, you know, a little ways away um, that were in different areas. I mean, it was pretty crowded because it was a Saturday also, which uh, I'll make it note that this was my second Saturday the whole season that I've been able to go out hunting besides opening day because I always have the kids Friday night, um, and so I can't go out Saturday morning mm. hunting. Right when mm. there's more birds on Saturday mornings because they haven't been shot at the day before, because oh. you can hunt Wednesday, Saturdays, and Sundays on public land. I see. So here I am wondering, like, why is Saturday such a big deal? Like, ducks don't know what Saturday is, but obviously they do. There are more ducks around yeah. on Saturday. Yeah, and so three minutes before shoot time. I'm getting back in my spot. I had good cover. I had already cut off a bunch of tule reeds and uh, and covered up my sled with uh, my you know my stuff in it and everything, and got back in my spot and was putting my shells into uh, my shotgun and realized that the action was locked, open, and um, and so that what that means. As, as I hear you, as head. you look at my facial expression, yes. what the fuck he's talking about <laughs> is that I cannot close the the shotgun on my shells. Um, at, I, I cannot use my gun. It's jammed it's, or what? It, it's perma perma jammed because uh, which uh, I found out, and I took I took what I could of it apart to try and re, you know to to try and adjust it. But what the problem was is this pin. The, in my shotgun, I have a Beretta A300 uh, Outlander shotgun, uh, and um, and this pin was not aligned perfectly. You have to when you take the trigger off to clean it, you have to you put it back in, and this pin has to go in and hold in the trigger um, into okay. the into the shotgun, and um, and some you know and you tap it in with like a hammer sort of thing, um, and. It took a little work to get in when I put it together, and I did not cycle through my shotgun, something I did not know I needed to do, really. I had left it locked open um, uh, when I put it away in my safe. And um, and so as soon as, you know, the hunt ended before it even started. So your gun, you can't use your gun? Nope. Because you don't have a hammer, or it's... I mean, I, I mean, I needed to take the pin out, really. So you need, like, pliers need, or something? No. So I need this little tool that kind of is going to push it through. And I'll show you after we record, like, kind of what exactly I'm talking about. Can you put this on our social media? I'm not going to put a picture of my gun on You're not? No, no, just not of your gun. Just of the close-up of, like, the pin. I don't think that's relevant. All right. Okay. We'll, continue. We'll, we'll continue on. <laughs> not relevant to the audience. They can look it up. Um, but there's this pin, and I will show you, uh, but that did not... Um, can you take a picture of you showing me and put it on social media? You don't, <laughs> even have to, you don't even have to show the gun or the pin or anything. Just like my expression, like, oh, oh. that's what he's talking about. That thing. Okay. That thing. That thing. Continue. Um, sorry. Yes. Uh, so... 
What, what I will do is I will let you fill the awkward silence for the next uh, 35 seconds while I go get the shotgun and show you how's that. So you talk to the concert pipeline audience. That sounds fantastic. All right. All right. So I am just dying to know what Steve is talking about because I've got no clue. I just watched him run across the room and disappear. So he'll be coming back with his shotgun. I think I've seen this thing once. And then uh, he's going to show me how it's jammed and why he was not able to fix it so this in is, the field. So all this, right. This is the pin right here, okay? Okay, that's a tiny little black thing. You see it. it oh, goes, yeah. It goes, goes all the way through. Both sides. Yes. Yeah. So you push it, push it through. And then when that, goes, when that pin comes out, the trigger can come off of the shotgun. And so that locks the trigger in place. Yes, it holds it in. Otherwise, you trigger Is that the same thing safe. as a safety? It's not. No. The, so that's this, that's an additional this, thing. This right here is the safety. So when you see that red line oh, right, right, there, right then the safety is off. Safety gotcha. On, safety off. Yeah, turn the safety off, dude. I mean, on. There's a, <laughs> I'll have it noted as well. There is a lock. It's locked. Oh my, my God. So, so there, there are, you have the safety, you have the pin, you have the lock. So there are three ways this thing won't go off. Right. Plus, is there a shot in there? Hopefully, is in there the whole time. (laughs) And and so you see how it's open right now. Right. This uh, was stuck open, and this is where I put the ammunition in. Right. And uh, and so this is, uh, I mean, if this is stuck open, it's not shut in. You can't use the gun. The ammunition, the gun cannot fire. So you needed what exactly at the hunt site? To start shooting again. So I needed the, you know, a, a little tool or a tiny screwdriver and the hammer to be able to push that through and get it through, you know, and take the trigger off. And because it took me even when I got, came home and uh, and adjusted, it, it took me like four times of taking the trigger off, and uh, and I had to turn the safety off of the tr- trigger and let it, you know, open up and then close it back in and put it on and then it can't went through easier. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, so yeah, I didn't have any tools out at the field. Mm. In hindsight, I should keep some in my car now for, mm. for future reference. Right. But um, a lot of hunts are nowhere near your car also. Sometimes mm-hmm. I hike out two miles, you know, and I'm not going to, you know, go all the way back to the car. Mm. And, you know, if, if that's the case, this hunt right. was, was not as far so I could have gone back to the car potentially, and I mean not before first shot. Right. In which I I stayed out there. I was texting with my friend who has the same gun I do, and he said, "Yeah, that had happened to him several times, just not out on, on a hunt because he cycles through his gun, and it's oh. something you have to kind of learn." Okay. So that cost me the the hunt on Saturday, and there were there were birds flying around, Shit. birds I could have shot. I'm sure of it. Man, I would have been so frustrated. I would have started throwing rocks. Yeah, and I, I've remained positive throughout this whole season, right? And uh, and did you go ape shit? Did you just lose your shit? No, I've, I I stayed positive, man. All right, good. What good. else can you do? It's on right. me. I made the mistake, right? All right. And well, you didn't know. I didn't. I mean, it wasn't really a mistake. You just didn't know. I mean, right. I didn't, but it cost me my hunt. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, where I could have had some birds finally, mm-hmm. and uh, and so I messed messed that up, you know. Mm. And then the next day. So that's that day. I go back home and I figured I'll let out and I learned, right? And I talked to my mm. friend. I, it's a learning lesson. Next day, I went out to the blind that we rented um, that I haven't been out to in over a month 
even though we paid dearly into this uh, this blind mm-hmm. that hasn't been producing any birds. But uh, one of the other hunters who went into the blind with us uh, on Wednesday had shot five birds out of the blind, which was the high for the whole season out of one hunter or multiple. Like, I mean, there's one other hunt where four hunters went out and they each shot one bird. Mm-hmm. Um, but he on his own shot five, which is great, you know? And so I'm like, okay... I'll go out with it with this guy who had hunted, you know, it and uh, and there's and there's mm-hmm. gonna be weather, there's gonna be rain and some wind and everything, and uh, and we're gonna shoot some birds on the rice blind, and uh, and so we get out there, uh, you know, and get into the blind, and we had one opportunity where we both took three shots at a bird that we, that we should have hit. One of us should have hit that bird. The fucker bird. got away. It got, he just he flew off after, you know, we, we took our shots and missed, you know? and um, That's like the luckiest fucking bird. Yeah. Luckiest fucking bird. I just watched Pulp Fiction for the, for the first time in a really, really, really long ter- time. Have you watched that film recently? Not in a really long time. I'd- There's a scene where or the two main characters get shot at six times yeah, and none of them get hit. Wow. And they're like, how do we, this was divine intervention. Yeah. This was divine. There's no other way to explain this. It was divine intervention. God was looking down on that bird. I mean, for whatever reason, this bird was important. If that bird's around me, it's was. (laughs) There have been so many safe birds that have been around me. It's just like, they talk. (laughs) <laughs> and and they know that they're they're okay, and and that was it. I mean, it was really windy, like fifteen mile an hour winds at least. There was a little rain too, not not crazy. It was a lot less than it was supposed to be when I looked the night before. And so we called that hunt early. Uh, we didn't stay that that long, and uh, it was disappointing. I mean, and that's mm. and that blind, you know, it was supposed to be great, but. It's kind of depressing because it's just like it's really easy to get out there. There's no work involved, right. no strategy. You just go out and you hope birds are going to come in and everything, and then they don't. Mm. And mm. there and there were a lot that were really high up, but none not shootable at by any chance. And in big groups, they're not going to come down uh, and, and into our shit, you know. Mm. So, so that hunt was a a dud as well. Um, wow. Um, and it's another one of those things you just got to write off to, you know, learning experience. It's like you went out there, you, you, you did your best and this unexpected thing happened. Okay. You know, I'm going to file that away and allow that opportunity to never happen again in the future. Exactly. So I have two more hunts. Um, um, you know, we'll see how I do out of the, the hunts and mm-hmm. on what, whatever our next podcast is, we will, uh, Wrap up the hunting season, <laughs> hopefully with a, at least one bird. <laughs> that is funny. We'll, we'll see, but, dude. That's crazy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like you always got to be prepared, I guess. You know, yeah. and you never. But if you're new at anything, you don't really know exactly what you have to be prepared for, and that's part of the whole learning experience. Um, like I was traveling. Uh, this was in Guatemala, and I got. What did I get? I ate something that didn't agree with me or something for a day. I had food poisoning probably. And I just like, oh my God, I had to go to the bathroom every hour. Oof. Right? Not fun. And this is not fun when you're traveling. 
especially if it's on a tour bus in the middle of freaking nowhere, you know, with 50 people on it. Mm. And, you know, every hour you're asking the guy to pull over at the next... They have to pull over the whole bus. Bush, you know, because you're in the middle of nowhere and you've got to, like, go to the bathroom. So the next time I went on vacation, I'm not exaggerating, dude. 25, no, maybe 20% of my bag, my luggage... Yeah were over-the-counter medications Oof. for anything that You're could possibly yeah. go wrong with you, right? Yeah. I mean, there's like Pepto, there's um, allergy medication, yeah, Benadryl, yeah, Benadryl yeah. exactly. Um, Tylenol. You've got your Sudafed, Tylenol, Advil, you've got Dayquil, NyQuil, you know, all, the, all that you're yep. covered. You're totally covered for all the general stuff. So if you're in the middle of nowhere and there's no drugstore anywhere, you're set. Yeah. And on that vacation, I didn't need any no, of it. Of course dude. you don't, because you, it you was brought like, it. Oh, why did I bring all this shit? I had, it was so beautifully organized. I had something like seven different big size Ziploc bags. Wow. It was all dedicated you to. You prepared. So. Yeah. Anyway, oof. I can't believe I'm admitting that, but. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> you can never be overprepared. Yeah. And, and so. So that, that hunt, that second hunt went from, you know, uh, it was, it's out in the Sacramento area. Right. And that leads us into the interview with, uh, last in line that we have coming up now. Um, and so I needed, I had the interview with last in line scheduled same day. So that's why I kind of, that's part of the reason I chose to hunt the blind Mm -hmm. as well was because I was going to interview them at their show at Ace of Spades in Sacramento Mm -hmm. um, before it, right? The interview was supposed to be around 3 PM. So I went out for a bit and hunted and then I had, you know, a bunch of hours to fill to stall. So, um, so I, you know, I was like, okay, well I'll get to Sacramento. I'll go watch a movie and fill, you know, fill a couple of hours. I I went and saw escape room, Mm -hmm. pretty good flick. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, went over to Ace of Spades and went in quarter to three, went in the venue and the, uh, a dude in the venue, you know, uh, I introduced myself who I was and he's like, yeah, the band's not going to be here till like four thirty or so. Right. And I'm like, okay, uh, <laughs> I've been waiting all day at this point. Right. You're, you're twiddling your thumbs some more. Yeah. Is this ever going to happen? And, and I had a dinner planned, you know, the, uh, my girlfriend was going to make me make mm. us dinner and everything. And so, I'm like, let me call the the band, and um, and I called and talked to Vinny, um, and he, uh, he told me, yeah, I'm not going to be there until like 4:30, and then we got this VIP thing, and mm-hmm. can we do like 5:30 or six for the interview. I'm like, and I wasn't, you know, I stay for most of the shows, but on a day where I'm hunting and I'm up, yeah, at three o'clock or so, you know, uh, like. I can't, it's not, and they're the headliner. You just can't can't stay awake. I can't can't do it. It's not safe for me to do that and drive home. Mm -hmm. You know, I I know my limits, even though I would have really loved to have seen their performance. They're, you know, they play a lot of Dio songs as well because Mm -hmm. it's a lot of members of uh, Dio's former band Mm -hmm. uh, back when Dio was alive. And um, and so I would have loved to have stayed for a show, but I was just like, at that point, I mean, I, I couldn't stay an extra three hours for the interview and just hang around twiddling my thumbs, mm. you know. So I asked Vinny, you know, hey, you mind doing this as a phone interview? And he was gracious to do it. Mm. Uh, he, he said, yeah, sure, we can do it. You know, we set up a time. Um, and 
uh, and ended up making the phone interview happen. Which, nice. Which was which was cool because I was like, I got to get back to Napa. Was it like know? on the way home? It, no. Yeah, just <laughs> while I'm driving. You know, like, it's like talking to <laughs> Around 5.30, did you say? Okay, I'm going to be on my way home then. Let's do it then. No. <laughs> I had to get home, though. I was like, I couldn't I couldn't stay around for three more hours. I couldn't do it. And right. So we, we worked it out. And, you know, thank you to Vinny. It, it wasn't on his schedule. Like, I mm. mean, the publicist, I guess, didn't communicate it right or what have you. And mm. uh, But he was... He was cool about it so he, he didn't realize like that he was that it was going to happen so. it's one of those things where it's like what we have here is a failure to communicate something like that yes <laughs> <laughs> so not from him and me we worked it out so um so telling you a little bit about Vinny, we'll talk you know really about it but um last in line has a new album coming out it's their second album aptly named two uh, following their uh, their first album called Heavy Crown, and he, this is a guy I mean who's done a lot, and we're gonna I'm not even gonna spoil it with everything that he's done because we talk about it all in the interview, and we you know we talk about a lot of his experiences which are pretty memorable, and uh, and so I just want to get right into it. We don't have any concert you know footage of course you know for the this episode just a great conversation let's bring Vinny uh, uh, a piece in from um, last in line and uh, have a chat shall we let's do it all right I am here with Vinny from uh, last in line and Vinny uh, you're playing a show tonight at Ace of Spades in Sacramento right yes we go on in two hours excellent we're, and we're excited so should be good oh excellent excellent and how's the tour been going so far uh, good. This is only uh, the first weekend of flyout, so it, this is the uh, third show. We did San Jose, Fresno, and it's been great. You know, Northern California has been really great for us, and we got some great fans here, and uh, shows are pretty pretty uh, successful. So we're looking forward to that tonight. Then we go home, and then we start up again after. You know, we have the NAM show going on in Los Angeles next weekend. Then after that, we start in uh, Arizona to a couple. Uh, one show there, and then the whiskey in LA, and then up in Ventura, California. Excellent, and I'm sure you've played the Bay Area many, 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 many times over your career. What What are some of the highlights for you of uh, times that you've uh, you've played uh, in the Bay Area? Uh, well, a lot of them, you know. We played. Uh, uh, what's the name of the big Coliseum? Oh, Oakland Coliseum, or like. Is it in, uh, in Oakland or San Jose, or where, where are you thinking? Yeah, um, well, in San Francisco. Oh, okay, yeah, it used to be Candlestick, uh, but now the ATT Park? Yeah, I don't know, I'm talking about back in 70. Oh, I'm, <laughs> sure, I'm sure it was Candlestick back then, right? Yeah, we were playing on tour with Aerosmith, and uh, we were opening, I was playing with Rick Downinger, and we played there a couple times, and then again with Black Sabbath in the 80s. And then, uh, then when we did Heaven and Hell later on, I think it was somewhere else on the outdoor venue. It was in the summer. And your your tour with Aerosmith was your, your uh, first time uh, playing arenas, right? Yes, we went from uh, playing. What we did was when we put the band together, the album was ready to come out. We went out and did a month of clubs just to tighten the band up, and then we got on the opening spot for the Aerosmith uh, Rocks tour. So. We were nice and tight by then, but that was the first introduction to uh, playing arenas where, you know, totally different stage, different sound, everything. And 
what we used, what I was used to at that point. Yeah. So it was good. It's a good teaching tool. Yeah. Tell me about that experience. Like how, how was that the first time? Like, do you remember the first time you played an arena and like the, the size, like the impact for, for you? Well, it was the <clears throat> mainly, what was different was the amps were further away from me. Obviously they were spread out more along the stage because the stage was uh, huge. And uh, so, you know, in the club environment, the amps are close together. The band plays pretty close together and you could hear everything uh, via the amps, you know? So all of a sudden you're in the arenas and I'm like, wow, this, everything sounds a little bit distant and have, you know, you have to get everything coming through the monitors to hear the band. And then the fact that, uh, you know, the guys were further away was uh, interesting too, you know? So it was just something to get used to the sound and, and the visual of being further apart from each other, you know? Yeah, and so. did you ever, did nerves ever play a factor for you or you were was playing on stage always like, pretty comfortable after a while pretty comfortable you know and uh, at first uh, you have some nerves here and there you know but then you get used to it and then you just do what you do naturally and what you're supposed to do up there and uh, it becomes a little bit more relaxed you know so now now it's after all these years it's, it's like going to my office <laughs> yeah, just another yeah, day in the office. The yeah, and uh, <laughs> and you've been playing drums for since you were like nine, right? And uh, so you kind uh, yeah. kind of followed in your brother's footsteps a little bit. Your brother Carmine uh, played drums as as well, right? Was that what inspired you to yeah. kind of uh, pick up the drum kit? Yeah, he's like eleven years older than me, and when he started uh, in Brooklyn, New York, we grew up. You know, I was a little kid and he used to have the band rehearsing in the house, you know, in the basement or in another room we had. And I used to watch him. I used to sit there and go, wow, this is cool. So for like an eight-year-old, nine-year-old kid, I had great entertainment. So it was inspiring inspiring, and I wanted to uh, to do that, you know. like. And then my brother got in a vanilla fudge and they did an album. And then my parents took us me and my sister to see the shows all the time. They were very supportive. And then I seen my brother playing from the big crowds and doing drum solos. And I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. I want to do this. So then I started playing. So that got me going. Yeah. Yeah. And your parents, were they, were they musical at all? Or did or what music did they play uh, in the household growing, no, up, growing up? They didn't, they didn't play anything. And uh, my mother loved listening to music. She always had the radio on and, and we had a hi-fi, you know, <clears throat> but she never played anything, nor did my father. And, uh, and you know, they were very supportive. With Carmine, they just wanted to make sure he graduated high school and then pursue the musical career, because he was, he was making some money already, you know. He was saying, well, if I work this job here, I'm making, back then, 50 bucks, but if I go work on the weekend a couple of nights, I'm making 150 bucks, so do the math, you know, so... They let him uh, do what he wanted, and they supported him. And that uh, was easy for me when I started going. You know, it's like I don't—I didn't even finish the high school. You know, I'm gonna have—I don't know how many years, two and a half years, and then I told him yeah, I want to quit. I was playing with John Lennon at that time too. Yeah, yeah, I want to. I want to talk about that. So, 
I mean, that's, that's incredible, right? I mean, you, you guys, you and your band, uh, BOMF, like got to open for, for John, like you played with John Lennon at like his last live show. Like tell me, and he like watched, you hung with you in studio, you smoked pot with him. Like, like tell me about like, what was that like? That's, I mean, that's incredible. Well, it was, it was insane. You know, it was like, well, we were up, we were managed by the records playing studios in New York and our good friend was, uh. Uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Iveen. He was producing John. So he got us in the record plant. Uh, they really liked us. They signed us to a management deal. We had a rehearsal room there. And uh, we'd rehearse there all the time. And one night Jimmy called and said, can you guys come down and do hand claps? So the band went down. And we go in the room, put the headphones on. We look, there's John Lennon. Oh, shit. This is insane, you know. And we wound up doing hand claps on whatever gets you through the night. That's something. And then we left. And then after that, John must have inquired who we were. And we get there so quickly, you know, all of a sudden there were nine of us. We had four horn players. And then he started coming up to our rehearsal room and hanging out, watch us play. He really liked us. And, uh, we, we had a pool room up there. We played pool together with him. So we started hanging and then he asked us to do videos with him. We did some, uh, backup of a, a singer that he was producing that was never released. And then uh, that videos, and then he asked us to do this live gig, you know, at the New York Hilton. It was a black tie affair, a big hoopla thing going on there. And it was broadcast around the world on TV, so we were the band. And then I found out not long ago that that was his last live gig. And I was amazed. Like, I played his last gig. Yeah. I was like 16 years old, 17 years old, going to school the next day. Yeah, you're in high school. You're you're like you know just one just a dude in a band at that point, and you're and you're with John Lennon. I mean, was that was I mean like what did that feel like uh, for for you? Was it just like surreal? Yeah, yeah, you know. And then coming back to school the next day and sitting in classroom, going, man, this is yeah. I don't I don't, I don't care what they're talking. You don't even care. You're just like I, I want to get out and play. Like this is incredible. Yeah. This is my life. I want. This is what I want to do. Right. Yeah, you know, like, I am just want to pursue music. So, you know, while I'm young, too. And that's what I did. My parents were cool with it because Carmine was successful. And they, they could see that there was success in it. And, you know, with him in the music business, so it was easy for me to leave. Yeah. And... Uh, and so, like, you kind of move forward, and you you got the opportunity to play with Black Sabbath. And at first, I mean, that was a, I mean, to play with Ozzy was a tough decision for you, right? Like, I mean, you actually turned down Ozzy. Tell me, yeah, I turned down an Ozzy Ozzy offer because uh, you know he wasn't he was just out of Black Sabbath, and he wasn't uh, uh, his solo career hadn't started yet. And that's when I got a call from his wife Sharon. And uh, then I talked to my brother, and I, I said, you know, I got an offer from Ozzy. Uh, you think, is he crazy? Or, you know, because I had to go to England at that time. So my brother knows him, and they toured together. And, and he said, yeah, he's pretty crazy. So I actually turned it down. And then about a month later, I get a call from Black Sabbath. They were in California. That's where I live. And uh, they heard me. I heard some, an album, a couple albums I did. So they invited me down. So I went down and played with them, and they liked it. And then I uh, pretty much joined the tour. That was the Heaven and Hell tour in 1980. 
and then it led to doing a couple albums with them, which is great, and touring, yeah. You know? And how was your relationship with Ozzy? Like, tell me about that dynamic. Um, well, you know, he probably doesn't even remember that anyway, but uh, then I've seen him over the years, and he, he's cool, you know, he's very cool. You know, he liked Ronnie, too, and they actually got along, besides all the... Uh, the uh, how the, the news media can say you know building it up that there's some shit going <laughs> on, and then uh, and then my brother played with Ozzy, you know, so I've seen Ozzy here and there, and he's always been nice, you know. And then at one point, nineteen, I think it was ninety nine, I joined the Bill Ward had a medical issue, and I flew in to England at the I think it was six week tour of Europe with Ozzy in the original. Tony and Geezer to the general Sabbath, which is cool. That was fun. Yeah, and how how were the live shows? Like, I mean, what, what was the dynamic with the band when you were when you were playing live with them? Um, you know, he was Ozzy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like amusing watching him from the drum stool. Yeah, I'm playing the songs and I watch what he does, and it's like almost a show for me watching them from from behind, you know. Yeah. It was quite it was fun. A lot of fun. Yeah. And so talk to me about how uh becoming how you're joining the ba- uh, Dio's band came about. Tell me tell me that process for you. Well, Sabbath uh we did Rob Rule's album and then we did Live Evil and then the band was starting to break up. Tony Geezer and Ronnie weren't getting on getting along business wise and stuff, so uh Ronnie had a deal in his pocket, you know, from Wooden Brothers and uh he was going to use it to do a solo album. Then he decided to put a band together. So he told me he was leaving the band, Sabbath, and do you want to come along? I'd love to have you in the band. And I said, yeah, it would be fun to start something new and and fresh with Ronnie. You know, great, great person and even greater singer. So I decided to go with Ronnie and then we, found Jimmy Bain and Vivian Campbell and we put the band together and it was a lot of fun back then. Yeah. And so, and you were with him like the entire entirety of, you know, his uh, solo career and everything, right? Well, I was with him for, uh, shit, maybe uh, seven years, six, seven years. You know? Yeah. And then things turned around. There was different members of the band. You know, the original band was Magic, Vivian Campbell, Jimmy Bain, myself. We did Holy Diver album, which became kind of like a legendary album. And then we did uh, Last in Line, which was right on his tail, Sacred Heart. And then uh, then Ronnie decided to change guitar players. So we got Craig Goldie, and then, you know, a lot of stuff changed. And the Magic wasn't quite there anymore, you know? So... And then it kept changing, changing, changing until finally in '87 I left. There's all new guys in the band, so like this is not the same band anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I only got to see Dio uh, live once, actually, in, in, on a tour he did with um, Motorhead and um, and Maiden. Uh, and I mean, yeah. it was just so cool to get to see him live and uh, Lemmy. And, I mean, what a what an amazing tour. Um, and yeah. Amazing musicians, and it's, it's it's sad to have lost them at this point. You know, I mean, it's. Um, oh yeah. I mean, life life. That's amazing. It's a tough. Yeah, amazing singer. 
for sure. Um, and so talk to me about how last in line, uh, came about. What was, what were those conversations like? And you guys have been around for, uh, you know, over over half a decade now. So tell me, you know, how the, um, how you, you guys formed last in line. Well, uh, Vivian called up one day and said, Hey, I just spoke to Jimmy. Uh, you intend maybe getting together and having a jam, play some of the old stuff, It'd be fun. And uh, I said, sure, you know, that would be cool. So we kept in touch here and there, Viv and I, and then Jimmy, we kept in touch, uh, and we did a number of different projects together, Jimmy and I. So uh, we said, yeah, let's do it. So we went in the rehearsal studio, the three of us, and we were playing all the songs, and we had a good time. It was fun. We're all laughing, you know, trying to remember the stuff. And then uh, it was so much fun, we decided to do it again. And we did it again. And at that time, Andy Freeman was in town. And I called him. We played with George Lynch, uh, Andy and I, a long time ago. We did a little tour with George. And Andy was a great singer. So I called him. I said, do you want to come down and sing some songs? We just, you know, from Cause yeah, so he came down. He started singing the deal, so it blew everybody away. Like it was like whoa, you know. So it was so, that was even more fun. And we decided let's, uh, you know, let's do some gigs, see what happens. So we got some gigs booked. Uh, we started in California. We only did one gig here, I think, and then uh, and then. Uh, our manager, we got a manager, Steve Strange, in Europe. He booked us on about five or six shows uh, in Europe. And kids loved it, man. The fans were going crazy. Yeah. So we decided to keep it going. And then uh, an agent came in. Then we started doing uh, more and more gigs. And then we got an offer from, to do a record from Frontiers. And we thought, oh, Okay. So, if we didn't want to just keep playing the old stuff, it would be like, you know, what are we, a tribute band? You know, we were the original band. Yeah. And uh, so, we got the offer, wrote songs for the band, the album called Heavy Crumb. The album came out, and it was, got a great acceptance, and it was, uh, you know, successful in terms of what you sell these days. And so, then we went out, yeah, we had to work around the Def Leppard schedule for all these years because he plays with them, obviously. Yeah, yeah, he's and, he's uh, pretty busy there. The main thing. <laughs> so we had to work around that schedule. So we didn't tour constantly. We toured when they weren't, and uh, and then the band got a little bit bigger, and we kept doing it, and then we got more and more fans. So we're doing good, and now we just finished our second album, which comes out February 22nd. And now we're just starting to do dates because uh, it was off until May. So we got a lot of flyout dates between now and May. So, yeah, yeah it's all good. And, uh, and Jeff Pilsen produced um, your your first album, Heavy Crown. Did he also produce your, uh, your new album that you have coming out too? Well, he produced the first one, and the second one, we kind of produced it with him. And uh, because, uh, you know, it, it, we had to do it in different schedules with everybody's schedule, and then uh, Jeff wasn't available for some part, 
parts of it, but Jeff, uh, Jeff and, and ourselves, we kind of did it together. Jeff's also Jeff's a pretty busy guy. Pounds, yeah. Yeah. He's uh, out with oh, yeah, yeah, he's got and, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. 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 We talked to him a couple years ago and he's a, he's a good guy too. So, um, that's, yeah. So tell me how that dynamic kind of changed between the first album and the, and the second album of working with, uh, with Jeff. Well, it didn't change, uh, you know, we kind of more, we're more focused on what we want to sound like. So, because we made one album and tours and that defined the sound. And, uh, the dynamics was the same, you know, it, it became, uh, same vibe in the studio and stuff. And at the end, Andy did a lot of his vocals at his house. You know, he felt more comfortable doing that there and he could try different things and experiment and see what he likes and what we like. So the dynamic was pretty much the same. It's just, we took on more of the, you know, arrangements of the songs and uh, all that. Jeff, Jeff didn't really arrange a lot of the songs. There were some songs that we sat in a room and we came up with different things. So it was good. It was a good team, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, so you have the new album, the, um, you have the year of the gun lyric video that's out right now. Did you guys have any part yes. in kind of the, the idea of that? I think it's pretty creative. I, you know, when I saw is you guys had a lyric video that, that definitely wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, it's pretty wild. That one was a good friend of ours, Eric Nielsen. He's done a, a lot of video footage for the DVDs and stuff like that. So, um, so he heard the song and listened to it, and that was more of his, less his creativity putting that together, you know. And it was cool because he filmed us live, you know, playing live to the song, and then put that in too. So it's not just lyrics. Yeah. So just lyrics gets boring. So this us playing, and it's almost like a regular video, really. So yeah. And, and one thing I like that I uh, read that you, you said before, and I kind of want to ask it a little bit more uh, into it, is that you, when you hear music, uh, you hear structure, uh, notes, and riffs, and you don't hear uh, lyrics. So tell me about that process right. for you, how that kind of comes about. Um, and Well, it, it kind of works because if we all were honing in on lyrics and, and, and melodies so much, uh, it wouldn't work. Like my seems like my job in the band is to just, to structure it, tempos and different uh, parts. I hear different chords, I hear different changes, but I don't hear lyrics for some reason. You know, I'd have to really listen to the lyrics for me to know what's going on. Even some of the Dio songs, I don't even know all the lyrics. So it's pretty crazy. It's just the way I'm built. But I hear riffs, I hear I hear uh, melodies, and, uh, you know, obviously tempos, time signatures, before the song might have a chance of going or maybe it's an idea, you know, I always put a lot of ideas out, you know, to see what everybody thinks. And some of them work, some of them don't work, but some of them support other ideas from everybody else. Yeah. Uh, that's what I do. Yeah. And Vinny, do you have kids? What's that? Do you have kids, Vinny? No. Oh, okay. No. There's lots of drums. Lots of drums. <laughs> Living life on the road. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, as we wind down, I just I'm kind of curious where where some of your favorite uh, places that you've toured have been. You've been all over the world, I'm sure, and seen so much uh, over your years uh, on the road. What are what are some of those special memories for you? It's it's hard to answer that because we've I've been touring for 40 years. Yeah, you know, and 
it's just like there's so many different places in the world, and they're all different. You know, Italy's beautiful. Venice and Venice is a place that, like no other. Places like that, uh, Austria, Germany. Every every place has its own thing. That's really cool. Paris, South America, the States, New York, Texas, L.A. It's hard to say this one place. I've been to too many places. Yeah. I haven't been to the moon. Maybe it's cool up there. Maybe we'll play up there somewhere. Do a show up there. That'll be good, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. Float around and everything. So tell, tell me, um, just as you're looking forward, is there anything um, you, uh, you haven't done yet, anyone you haven't performed yet that you uh, would like to perform with and um, something to look, uh, look forward to um, down the road? Uh, well, you know, there's a lot down the road. I got a lot of things coming up. Um, I've been more busy now than before. It's unbelievable. I'm doing rock camps, you know, rock fantasy camps. I'm doing, uh, these, these horror event shows just appearing and doing autographs. So there's a whole bunch of stuff happening in my career that wasn't happening years ago. And it's really cool. And then last of mine is my, my main thing. And there's a couple of, uh, uh, like I go to Europe and play with a great band in Europe and we do, uh, it was, last tour was called Mob Rules, Mob Rules Live. And we do all songs from Mob Rules and a couple old Sabbath songs, one or two Dio songs. And it's been real successful. And I did it in South America. I did it in Ohio. And that's starting to build up too. Cause really I'm the only guy that played in the legitimate version of Sabbath that's still there, still out there playing, you yeah. know? And has more of a, a right to play those songs. Yeah. And I played them a million times, and then I'm on the albums that most of the stuff we're playing. So so that's good. So as far as playing with somebody, it'd be fun to play with Jimmy Page. You know, I grew up on Zap and all those riffs. That would be fun. Have you had a chance to meet him? No, I never met him. Nope. There's one guy I never met. Yeah, never crossed paths, huh? It- no. Nah. So t- tell me about the rock and roll fantasy camps. Uh, you, meant, you mentioned uh, that you're doing those. How is that experience of uh, being able to kind of pay it forward to the next generation? Those, you know, those fa- uh, fans of yours and those musicians that just kind of want to continue to grow and learn like that. Well, it's cool because it's something different, you know, like years ago, we used to just do albums that go on tour. And that was, uh, that was what we did. That's what I did. So, it was easy. Then all of a sudden I got to do some, they offered me drum clinics. And I went, whoa, okay, there's something. Oh, what am I going to do on this? You know, challenge. So first couple of those, I was nervous. And then I got that under my belt. It was a challenge that was, that was cool. And then we started doing, I offered to do these rock fantasy camps. And it's just something different that uh, it's, it's great to, to see people enjoying themselves for four days. And some of these people are heads of, you know, CEOs of companies and stuff, yeah. or doctors, and and they're they're playing guitar in your band, you know, and you get to tell them what to do and teach them and get the band tight, you know. Yeah. And uh, great experience, and then they have such a great time, and you hear back from them, and that's a really good payoff, you know. So yeah. it's a great thing, really cool. Yeah. 
Awesome. Well, yeah. Vinny, thank you for taking the time today and um, and yeah, yeah. hit me back. I know we weren't able to make it happen at the venue, but but uh, I'm glad you called back yeah. and uh, and we were able to chat. Um, I mean, it was really great to hear about you know some of your amazing experiences yeah. over yeah. the years. Sorry about the, all the mess up, but at least we got to talk. <laughs> it's all good. All good. Cool. I hope you have a great uh, second right. night and a good uh, rest of the tour ahead. Okay. Thank you. All right. You too. Thanks. Have a good night. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye, Vinny. That was the interview with Vinny from Last in Line. Thank you, Vinny, for taking the time to chat for Concert Pipeline. And Jens, that takes us to the last segment of the podcast, your favorite segment. What is it? It's music news. That's right. Uh, kind of a slow news day as it goes, uh, but we have a couple of stories for you here. Uh, and um, I forget, did you say you wanted to go first or second? Uh, I will go second uh, just because I want to be consistent with how we do these things historically speaking. Historically, okay. <laughs> well, for historical purposes, I will. Yeah, I don't want to throw anyone off. You know, I don't want to have you know people out there saying, whoa, whoa Steve isn't going first this time? What? Right. And so uh, my first story, Jens, has to do with uh, R. Kelly. You familiar with R. Kelly, Jens? Yes. Not a great gentleman. Not a very, you know, gentlemanly man to women, I guess, right? Correct. Uh, and uh, and so this is a, there's been a movement against him. Uh, and you can read more at hashtag mute R. Kelly. Um, Interesting. All right. Yeah, it, it takes its protest to the steps of his record label. Oh. Yeah. So the story as of a couple of days ago was uh, protesters were gathering on the 17th outside of the headquarters of Sony Music Entertainment in Manhattan um, to demand that the company drop R. Kelly from its roster. Uh, it was the latest development in a long saga of accusations against him that uh, he has sexually and physically abused young women for more than a quarter of a century. Unbelievable. Yeah, we've talked we've talked about him before on the podcast. It's he's a scumbag, right? And um, outrage over the allegations erupted earlier this month. Following, there's a six part Lifetime TV docu series called "Surviving R. Kelly," and apparently that's the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, so he preyed on young black girls, and RCA Records is complicit in this, says Natalie Green, one of the protest organizers. They promoted an abuser and they allowed him to line his pockets to make royalties to go on tour and thus expand his fan base. Uh, and with Nuts. that fan base, he was able to abuse more girls. Uh, RCA Records has helped normalize violence against women. Wow. So she claimed that R. Kelly used a star power to elicit young women from his fan base. Uh, and that was a common argument made throughout the Lifetime docu docuseries that came out. Um, first of all, only women watching Lifetime, the Lifetime docu series, right? Just saying. So yeah, I don't. I wouldn't even know how to get to Lifetime. I don't know. Like, is, is you just that, keep pushing up on the remote or something. Is that like not a Netflix thing? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, and I guess last Thursday, Lady Gaga apologized for a 2013 duet with Kelly and had it removed from streaming services. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So people are out there retroactively removing shit. Other artists like Celine Dion and the Pussycat Dolls have also reportedly asked for their recorded collaborations with him to be pulled down. Mm -hmm. um, and 
on on Thursday, the Interscope Records, the label of the Pussycat Dolls, confirmed to NPR that it's in the process of taking down the group's 2008 song out of this club, which features Kelly and rapper uh, uh, Palau Dadon. Um, so the protesters delivered what they said was more than 200,000 petition signatures mm-hmm. urging the label to drop Kelly. Wow. Um, so that was a couple of days ago. Follow-up to that story ends mm-hmm. um, is uh, that as of, um, I, I think, the next day, uh, R. Kelly was dropped by RCA Records. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I know. That's quick That's action. Very quick action. Yeah. Yeah. And so Billboard magazine uh, reported that he was dropped. Um, and uh, let's see, he's long been one of the most prominent performers in R&B. He continues to maintain his innocence. Uh, but in the weeks since the documentary uh, began airing, protests uh, called for the label to sing. Uh, I mean, they really just kind of expanded after that. Um while RCA and Sony have not confirmed to NPR that Kelly has been dropped, he was removed early Friday from the label's website. Mm. Um, and the, his label had stood by him through previous public allegations, including a 2008 trial on charges mm. of child pornography after he was accused in 2002 of making a video of himself having sex with a girl who was age 13 uh, oh, or 14 at the time. Shit. <laughs> he was acquitted of all charges. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, this is a huge victory for the survivors who came forward, both in surviving R. Kelly and before, and all young black women who are systematically undervalued in our society, says Arisha Hatch, the managing director of campaigns at Color for Change, one of the organizations that has been part of the hashtag mute R. Kelly campaigns. In a statement released to the press, Victory belongs to the survivors of his abuse. Their brave testimonies played a critical role in pushing RCA to drop R. Kelly. Wow. What an amazing story. Right. That's powerful. What, um, you know, a large group of people can do. Yeah. Yeah. Power in numbers. Exactly. It's uh, pretty incredible. That know, is so. totally incredible. It reminds me kind of, of how quickly What's-His-Face's career crumbled. Um, you know, I'm terrible with names. Actor, super famous, House of Cards. Oh, yeah. Um, the Usual Suspects. Yeah, and I, why am I blanking on who you're... That movie saying? with the red yeah. something, the rose, rose petals. Uh, it's Kevin Spacey, yeah. American Dream. Kev- Kevin Spacey. Uh, Kevin Spacey, yes. Yeah. Kevin um, Spacey. Yeah, and it was like, you know, the stuff started coming out in the news about him, and the next thing you know it, you know, he's dropped from uh, the next season of House of Cards. Did you see the video of Kevin Spacey um, that uh, the, the Let, it, Let Me Be Frank video? No. He posted that? on Twitter this video, uh, and it has 10 million views. I'm surprised it only has 10 million uh, on, on YouTube, but mm-hmm. he, like, on his own posted this on his uh, tw- uh, Twitter like where he reprised his character from there and kind of, you know, talked about this situation in, indirectly hmm. a little bit. Like here, here, we'll listen to just a second, a moment of it. Like you can see. I know what you want. Oh, sure. They may have tried to separate us, but what we have is too strong. It's too powerful. I mean, after all, we shared everything, you and I. 
I told you my deepest, darkest secrets. I showed you exactly what people are capable of. I shocked you with my honesty, but mostly I challenged you and made you think. And you trusted me, even though you knew you shouldn't. So we're not done, no matter what anyone says. And besides, I know what you want. You want me back. Of course, some believed everything and had just been waiting with bated breath to hear me confess it all. They're just dying to have me declare that everything said is true and that I got what I deserved. <laughs> Wouldn't that be easy if it was all so simple? Only you and I both know it's never that simple, not in politics and not in life. Wow. Yeah. And like the parallels <laughs> there, you know? Oh my gosh, Fuck. yeah. All the comments on that video. Like, uh-huh. I, was, I was scrolling through the comments on his Twitter, and people were just like ripping him a new one. Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. There was something, you know, I mean, sometimes you hear, sometimes the news comes out about somebody, and you think, wow, are you serious? Really? Yeah. But with Kevin Spacey, Ever since I saw my first movie with him, I felt like something is really off with this guy. Like, I don't know what it is, but something just doesn't sit right with him. Yeah. Uh, with me, and I don't know. Him. It's weird. So, uh, for, so for me, this doesn't come as a surprise at all. But it's, it's so nice that people are maybe more comfortable now, I guess. This is kind of a trend um, to, to kind of take the risk and come out, you know, especially in group settings and be heard. Yeah. Well, I mean, he posted that video on Christmas Eve. Yeah. He's wearing a Santa apron, you know, after he washed his hands in yeah, the yeah. kitchen. And he's just like, I don't know. It was really surprising. <laughs> it was really surprising to see. But uh, wow. I, I was never a big House of Cards fan or anything uh-huh. like that. I never got into it. But uh, uh, just the fact that you would just come out and do that, like, it's just really out of left field. Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I got into House of Cards, uh, I think a lot of, because of Rooney Mara's, is that the actress uh, who's in it? Um, I thought she was exceptionally good in her dynamic with Kevin Spacey. And it's like, oh my God, this guy's such a fucking slime ball. I think the reason he acts so well is in this role is because he's like that in real life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like it, right? He turned into himself. Right. You got you got a story first, Jens, right? Yes, I do. All right. Uh, we got the big Super Bowl coming up. We do. What is this bowl of super? This big bowl of soup. Uh-huh. <laughs> this big bowl of soup. This happens in um, two weeks. So uh, we just. Did you you were off doing your thing? Uh, I saw both the games last weekend. You did, and, and I heard one of them. The second one was really, really good. Is that right? The was it the first one? Uh, the first, uh, the Saints game, where they lost, was that was a good game. That was a good game to watch, um, especially in comparison with the other playoff games, which have been awful. Um, the game after that. The Patriots game, they that the second half, the first half was awful. The second half was fantastic. I mean, that was probably the best, uh, the best half of of football so far this postseason. 
Um, hate the Patriots. Uh, so bummed they won. But I am super, super excited that the Rams are going to be uh, going to be playing. And of course, one always has to talk about what the commercials are going to be like during Super Bowl, and especially what the halftime show is going to be all about. Right? I just don't even care about the commercials. I mean, you are. I mean, there used, there's a point when they were. I'm sure they were great, but. They used to be so awesome. Yeah. Like in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, when the whole dot-com thing was happening and companies, startups were just throwing massive amounts of money into these Super Bowl ads. Yeah, and they still are throwing massive amounts. Yeah, they are, yeah, more than they used to. But there used to be some serious cash that allowed for some really Awesome commercials, but we don't really have that anymore. So let's just talk about the Super Time Half, the the, the, the Super Time, Super yes. Time, the Super the Super Bowl Halftime Show. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> Maroon Five. How excited are you about this band? Mm, not really. <laughs> yeah, neither am I. Neither am I. Right. So what? Maroon Five? Come on. We can do better. Come on. We can do way better. Foo Fighters. What are the Foo Fighters I playing know. the Super Bowl? Let's have a real band. I mean, no one wanted to play the Super Bowl, right? There, there are artists that passed it up. We talked about Cardi B passed it up. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about that. So Maroon Five is the headlining performer uh, during the Super Bowl 53 halftime show. And... Um, they will be joined by rappers Travis Scott and Big Boy. Why big, is he called Big, big Boy? Big Boy from Outcast. From Outcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what. I mean, I can't help you there. But. You know, he's probably got a nickname for reasons. So, uh, both Super Bowl 53 and the halftime show will take place at the Mercedes Benz Stadium, uh, not the one in. Uh, in uh, in uh, in uh, New Orleans, but the one in Atlanta. Okay, Atlanta Falcons, their home stadium. So why 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 are you asking? Is Maroon Five performing this year? Well, it's not because they were the first band picked. No, far from it. Apparently, uh, they weren't the NFL's first choice. At least two singers reportedly rejected invitations as you were saying earlier, from the NFL, most notably Rihanna and Cardi B. Um, in a show of solidarity with former 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. Well, how do you feel about that, Jens, like the whole Kaepernick thing? I feel like he needs to do something about his hair. Okay. I'm not going to take a political stance on this. I'm going all fashion on this You're one. You're going all for the hair. Okay. His freaking hair is awesome, but how do you get it all into a helmet? Like, I don't get it. His hair is bigger than a helmet. Bigger helmet or no? (laughs) Yeah. His helmet used to be twice as big because he's just ruining that hair. Right. That's all I have to say about that. So Kaepernick is involved in a high-profile collusion case against the league related to his protest of uh, police brutality and racial injustice. The pop singer-songwriter Pink also uh, reportedly turned down uh, the invitation as well. No one was interested. No need, one is interested. It's old, been a while. I don't need, even know who we had last year. We need a, I mean, you scroll down. I, th- I think it was, was it Timberlake or whatever? Or? Probably. Yeah. 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 At the bottom of that article, I think it is. Most has. watched music. Yeah. The most watched event of the year, the I, previous halftime I don't understand why been. anyone would turn down that level of, you know, audience. Like, I just don't understand that. 
Yeah. And I'm sure it pays really well. Yeah. And your album sales go off the charts after efforts. I just don't understand the turndown factor. Maybe it's good. just bands that don't feel like, you know, they, they feel fine turning it down, uh, you know, for, for political reasons or whatever. I guess. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, some of the highest grossing ones, like you said, uh, Justin Timberlake, uh, Madonna, Prince, Bruno Mars. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll probably just fast forward through that part. In, into the future. Into the future. Yes. Yep. Like exactly. <laughs> Skip ahead. Exactly. Skip ahead. Cool. Well, I have uh, another story, and, you know, yeah, sir. We can't make it any music news without talking about one exceptionally talented musician. Oh, oh, dude, no way. Yeah, doing it. Is this our final story? I mean, I, it's a slow news day, so it's. I, I'm going to give you a two-parter. Okay. Uh, to do with two-parter sounds good. To do with. Are you talking about Mr. Dave Grohl? Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. I am. Nice. Yes. Bring it on. Uh, so this one isn't really about Dave Grohl, but he's in the story. So I'll, I'll focus on him a little bit more in the second part, but. Soundgarden um, had a tribute concert that uh, the full set is available online. And, um, and you know, this is dedicated to uh, Chris Cornell, obviously, who he mm-hmm. lost well before his time. And the rest of, the, uh, of Soundgarden reunited last week for the all-star I Am The Highway, a tribute to Chris Cornell concert at the Forum in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they played eight songs uh, with classic hits and deep cuts, and guest appearances from Taylor Momsen, Marcus Durant, Tom Morello, uh, hmm. uh, Wayner Kramer, Pearl Jam Stone Gossard, Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters, and Buzz Osborne of the Melvins uh, before the night's finale of Black Hole Sun with vocalists Brandy Carlisle and Peter Frampton. Wow. Evening closed with a lengthy feedback session by guitarist uh, Kim Tyil and bassist Ben Shepard. It was hosted by Jimmy Kimmel. Mm. Um, and it was the first performance of the uh, three surviving members of uh, Soundgarden following Cornell's pass in, uh, passing in May of 2017 at the age of 52. Um, mm. So there are also performances by Temple of the Dog, Audio Slave, uh, Metallica. Foo Fighters, uh, Ryan Adams, and the Melvins, with a number of guests, including Adam Levine mm. uh, from your Maroon 5, um, uh, Miley Cyrus, Ziggy Marley, and Chris Stapleton, among others. Um, and so really cool evening of performances. I, I want to watch the whole set, really, and check it out because yeah. it seems really cool. Uh, I mean, like, like an... Um, really amazing performance. So Dave Grohl per- performed as well. Nice. Um, I saw him up there with Rob Trio from Metallica mm. and some others, and sweet. Um, and a, a lot of fun. Um, Dave Grohl, um, did just uh, turn fifty. Yes. Yeah, Dude, just, that guy is fifty. Yeah, and so he Whoa. just he had a fifty fiftieth birth, birthday party, uh, and. Uh, he, he a lot of a lot of cool people were invited to Dave Grohl's fiftieth birthday party. I wasn't invited. Did N- you get an invite? Nor was I. I didn't check the mailbox in time. I guess. Fuck. Um, but uh, um, it was a bowling party. He was joined by Taylor Hawkins, his drummer in Foo Fighters, <laughs> Guns N' Roses bassist Duff McKagan, uh, Sex Pistols guitarist 
Steve Jones. Oh. So I think it went to the wrong Steve Jones. Yeah, that explains it. Yep. Um, and uh, and so he he had some really big candles on his birthday cake, uh, <laughs> and there's a lot of videos of uh, you know from the thing of. Uh, like Duff McKagan and Steve Jones talking, Duff shooting basketballs. Uh, I guess there, there's some basketball, uh, you know, stuff going on there. Uh, there's a picture of Dave Grohl, uh, emotionally kissing, uh, Steven Tyler, uh, from Aerosmith. Like how emotionally? <laughs> well, here, I'll show you the, the picture. He's got a big mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steven Tyler's big mouth is, is open. Okay, uh, I'm going to put my glasses on for this. Hold on. I mean, not during... No, okay. There's no mouth-to-mouth no, here. No, no, it's on the side. Right there. But I'm pretty sure Steven Tyler's mouth could consume Dave's <laughs> it head. It looks, I mean, if he tilted it slightly to the left, he would have eaten Dave yep. <laughs> with his big there old mouth. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so they. it seems like he had a lot of fun. Um, with a with some special guests from his uh, his birthday. Party. That's great. That's Sorry. great. You know, I can imagine Dave Grohl just, you know, getting a bunch of friends together, hopping in the back of a big pickup, and just, um, rickrolling a bunch of events. I mean, you know. he, he did that before. He did that before, right? The that's Westminster where, Baptist Church. That's where I'm getting the idea yes. from. <laughs> Been like, there, done that. Uh, rickroll fifty people or fifty events mm-hmm. for your fiftieth. Yes. Spend all day doing it. You see, the thing with him that, that doesn't line up with is he's not going to do the same thing 50 times. He's going to do something new every freaking time. And That's gonna, how original he is. Yeah. So doing it once is, is fine. He made his mark. And, so there's no Rickroll Part 2? I don't think so. I've been checking YouTube every day for Rickroll Part 2. You keep looking, okay? Uh, I think I'm just wasting my time at this point. I would say so. Okay, I'm going to move on. Move on to your last story. You got one more story for us, Jens? Uh, it's about Ozzy. Ooh, okay. You ready for Ozzy's story? I am, yes. All right. So, Ozzy. Oh, apparently Ozzy's been thinking about death. Ooh, why is that? Well, he's uh, he's finally granting his dying wish. His dying wish? He, well, Ozzy grants dying wish of former... Not his dying wish. Not his dying wish. Okay, <laughs> let's let's clarify whose dying wish this is. Oh yes, what am I gonna do? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Okay, so uh, let me let me start again. This is a story about Ozzy's dying wish, but it's not God, it's not yes. him dying. This is where rumors are started. <laughs> I don't invent fake news. I just don't know what I'm talking about. Um, so okay, so Ozzy grants dying wish of former Blizzard of Oz bandmate. Okay. All right. So Ozzy granted the dying wish of original Blizzard of Oz solo band drummer Lee Kerslake. Okay. Who revealed late last year that he had a short time to live. Kerslake broke the news during a discussion with the Metal Voice where he shared that he had prostate cancer. That spread, and um, he's now battling bone cancer on top of that. And the doctors gave him eight months to live. Oh, Lee, so sorry to hear that. Um, Lee also explained that he reached out to Ozzy and Sharon uh, with the last request and that they had settled their previous differences over royalties and songwriting credits. 
Oh, good. Okay, so they were able to yeah. wrap things up. Yeah, so he said, It's all forgotten and forgiven. I've written to Sharon and Ozzy recently, a personal letter basically asking them to kindly send me platinum album certificates for Blizzard of Oz and Dairy of Madman. Diary, good God. Oh, my God. I said diary. You said dairy. Are they spelled differently? Yes. D-A-I-R. D-I... Whatever. Okay. Oh, my Move God. On. Yes. We talked about this. You need to... It's the beer, dude. Oh, my I God. I can't even see this freaking words anymore. Uh, to hang on my wall before I die. It's on my bucket list. Okay. I hope they will come to terms with it and say yes. I went belly up, bankrupt, when I lost the case to Sharon and Ozzy. Did you say Billy? Belly up. Did I say Billy? I think you said Billy. Should I just stop reading at this point? I think you're having some trouble here, Jens, and I think we're. <laughs> I think I'm having some difficulties. I think with we my eyeballs. Wrap this story. <laughs> anyway, so I guess they all, you know, gave each other a group hug, and um, that's that. I'm not going to continue <laughs> the story for fear that I might reveal something that's totally. Not true and never happened. We, we, I thought you had a commitment to, to the concert pipeline audience about your uh, reading of stories. Oh, I did, didn't I? I said that, I think, very uh, recently. Think so. No, that was just about people's names. Okay. I wouldn't screw up people's names anymore. I didn't, I never said anything about not screwing up stories. Uh, I think, but you did throw a name in there, Billy, when you meant Belly. And, but that wasn't technically somebody's name. No, no, you just, because belly up isn't someone's <laughs> name. I just said Billy. Fair uh, enough. Uh, I don't know. I think what, I said Billy. The, the, what you're saying is the dude got a couple of platinum albums, you know, to put on his wall before he... He did. He kicks the can. Yeah, exactly. That was on his bucket list. And yeah, he can yeah. enjoy that stuff. It's not Ozzy's dying wish. It's not Ozzy's dying wish. <laughs> the, the, the biggest takeaway, guys, from this is Ozzy's not dying and he didn't give himself a dying wish. Right. I don't know what to do. That's it. That's the story. I think I think we got it, and and we needed to pay Ozzy respect because we have a member of his former band on the show today, Jens, and we do. Yes, I uh, I apologize for that. I'm going to go sit in a corner now and um, feel you know feel terrible about myself. You, you need to do that. And so, I'm going to go take reading lessons. Yes. Or get my glasses. Get a new subscription for my glasses. Fair enough. Well, thank you to Vinny of Last in Line for uh, taking the time to chat on today's podcast. Apologies to my co- for my co-host uh, behavior, <laughs> but who will not be returning? <laughs> right. But uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Um, so that's we don't have anything hundred uh, percent solidified right now, but it, in a couple weeks might be interviewing a band called Gang of Four that's playing at the Chapel in San Francisco on Saturday, February 9th. Uh, so have that in the works. Um, besides that, see see what we get when we get it. Um, so for all of us here at Concert Pipeline, that's Jen Schippel. I'm sitting in the corner. (laughs) Okay, he's in the corner. And that's Steve Jones. (laughs) We will catch you next time.